around for us, um, is we will pray for one another. And so it's at this time that I'm going to go ahead um, and just open the floor. If there is anything that we could pray for you about, would you please raise your hand? The microphone will come around to you. Um, and if you could just share your name and what how it is that we could pray for you, that would be great. Uh, another reminder is we recognize sometimes it's hard um, to just share with a microphone in front of everyone these requests that we might have. And so if you have a request that you aren't ready to share yet with a microphone, there's a little box next to the giving box in the back there, a little basket that has prayer requests on it. You can write that down, put it in the giving box. If it is something that maybe you only want uh, myself and our elders to look at, if you could just check, there's a little confidential box. If you could just check that, if there's if you'd like it not to be distributed to anyone else, because one of the things we do with those prayer cards is we'll just distribute them to people. And some of you have cards with requests that you've been praying over for weeks. Um, but if it is something that you would only like maybe my eyes and our elders to see, please just check that box. And we'll be sure to pray for you for those difficult things. Uh, but with that, we would just open it up and we want to hear from you. How is it, Common Ground Church, that we can pray for you? What is it that God is doing in your life that maybe we could celebrate and we could just give God glory to? Would you share those as well? But we'll go ahead and just listen now. Um, my name is Joey. Um, as many of you know, Lindsay and I uh, did close on our house recently, and we have been renovating it. Mm-hmm. And I just want to offer praise to God and thanks to our community who has just come and surrounded us and helping us get it ready for moving in and just using it as a place for God's glory. It's really amazing to see how even in the preparations, um, God is glorified through, you know, bringing many people to our aid and just, you know, that provision there. So. Just praise God for that. And yeah, that's it. Praise God. <laughs> awesome. Excited for you guys in this new home. We'll be continuing to pray for the, all the renovations and how God can use that. Uh, I'm Jacob, and I would like prayer for uh, Maggie. She's a lady who lives at um, Audrey apartment building. Um, she was going to come to church this morning with me. Um, she can't drive. She has vertigo, so I was going to give her a ride. But um, this morning, she just didn't feel comfortable going. Um, she hasn't been to church in 11 years, uh, she said. And so she's had a yeah. bad experience the last church she was at. Um, so just prayer for, for her that, you know, God can, can work through her and that, you know, Audrey and I can be used on her life to show the love of Christ and that we can just, I don't know, get to yeah. know her better and just yeah. uh, walk with her through her walk with Christ. So That's awesome. You guys are good neighbors. I think it's important that we don't just move around and never meet our neighbors, but to actually get into the things where you're able to have that conversation to hear what her experience has been. So we'll be praying for Maggie, praying for the hurt she's experienced, but you know that God is still calling her to himself. Be praying for your role in that. My name is David. Um, so this upcoming week, we all know what it is, Sturgis. So um, anybody who works with people, so people in restaurants, hotels, and car rental. Um, <laughs> at the airport. Pray, yeah, at the airport <laughs> or anywhere. Uh, just pray for everybody to like at least have the energy mm-hmm. to handle that and the patience as well on both sides so mm-hmm. that it doesn't get too wild and crazy. 
mm. and everybody's safety because yeah. motorcyclists are yeah crazy yeah yep praying for safety every year you know there are always a few tragedies so we're praying against that but then we'll pray that this week would be a good week for you to grow in patience to grow in long suffering and <laughs> you you'll have plenty of opportunities i imagine <laughs> thanks for sharing that david bella's in the in the shadows back there Someday they might sit in the front. Uh, No. (laughs) Hi, I'm Izzy, and I just wanted to ask prayers for my grandpa who got in an accident this morning. And Mm -hmm. he's okay, but just shook him up quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, man. Be praying for your grandpa. No. I won't torture you, but I can handle a lot of awkward silence, just to be warned. But Hi, I'm Kaya, and um, we're going to be going on a little, like, family trip to Michigan, and we're driving, so just prayers for, like, mm-hmm. safe travel and that Acacia would do well. And, mm-hmm. yeah, we would have a good time with our family. We're going to visit our grandparents, so. Oh, awesome. We'll pray for that trip. Good time with family. Is that the longest Acacia will have ever been in the car? more opportunities for patience all right we'll pray for you guys man but what a fun trip we're praying that it can just be full of joy getting to see parents awesome Um, I'd like to pray for Carrie's mom as she's um, coming out of a bad situation with all the flooding they had in Spearfish. She ended up with uh, feces in her basement. And so they've had to come in and clean up the basement and all that stuff. So just rebuilding and getting stuff back to where it was and the cost of all that. Yeah, man. Yeah, praying for her, probably for that entire little neighborhood. I know they had bad flooding, so... What a hassle. Pray for just that to be taken care of and fixed then. Uh, hi, Tatiana again. And um, <clears throat> about same things, uh, please remember, uh, pray for Ukraine. And um, uh, for my brother, um, brother Ivan and his family, who is in Dnipur and was bombed uh, recently, a few days ago. And also <clears throat> my father, um, Alexander, uh, he and our stepmother lives in the north of Ukraine region where his kind of like capital of the state was bombed yesterday. Mm. So it's very close to his village where he lives. Uh, please pray, um, continue pray for protection. And uh, I will also praise Lord for all those um, time um, he's keeping them safe and sound. Yeah, Thank you yeah. for praise. It really is a miracle all that they've been through, and they are still safe. So we're just going to continue to pray for that, continue to pray for their protection. As that continues to happen and just praying for you guys as you continue to have to worry and watch family go through that so praying for all of you okay well 
I don't feel the need to, to crowbar anything out of you too much. Um, but thank you for sharing. I know that it isn't always the easiest thing to do. But again, we view prayer as one of the most important things um, that we can do as a church. And so one of the things that we like to do as we pray for one another is we like to just gather together um, with three or four or seven, uh, however many you feel comfortable with. And so I'm just going to invite you during this time, uh, maybe you wrote them down, maybe you didn't, maybe someone around you did and they remembered these. I always try to write down the requests so that I can pray with them throughout the week. An alarm goes off on my phone on Wednesdays, and I cover these again, Um, but if you did not write them down, uh, as you gather together with a few people and you pray over some of these requests, I'll just give you a reminder um, of what the requests were, and again, you don't have to cover every single one of these requests. I don't think this is necessarily like we need to check everything off the box, but would you just pay attention um, to which one has stood out to you? Um, What is the Holy Spirit really leading you um, to cover in prayer here as you listen to these requests? And then as I read this list, correct me if I forgot any as well. Um, But I'll go ahead and just read the list, then I'm going to begin in prayer, and I'm going to dismiss you to just gather around with a few and to pray for these requests. And so Joey and Lindsay are celebrating the purchase of their new home and all the renovations, all the help that they've been able to get. And we're just praying for them and their new home, that it could be used for the glory of God, for advancing his kingdom. So would you pray for them in this new house? And and Jacob and Audrey are, are praying for their neighbor Maggie, who has had some serious church hurt in the past And we're just praying um, that God would be able to come in and heal those wounds and draw her closer to himself. And we're praying for Jacob and Audrey as they are on the front lines of that. Uh, David reminded us to pray for him out of the airport with the rental cars and just for everyone in the service industry, in law enforcement, in uh, medical industry as the Sturgis rally begins and everything that goes along with that. Uh, Izzy and her grandpa was in an accident just this morning, you said, right? And so we're praying for uh, Hunter and Tina and, and Izzy and Liston's family as, as their grandpa was in this accident. We believe Jesus is a healer, and so we're going to call on him um, to heal their grandpa there. And then Kaya, Therese, and Acacia are going on a trip to Michigan. Acacia's longest time in the car for this little one-year-old. And so we're just going to pray for a smooth, safe trip. Colin, are you going to? All right, we'll pray for you too, Colin. <laughs> and we'll pray for the family as they get to go uh, see their grandparents and just have a good time together. Uh, Carrie Schmidt's mom's basement got flooded and just the hassle and the work that that is. So pray for her. And then continue to pray for Tatiana and Liana and Luba's family uh, in the Ukraine as their city was bombed. And these things are not just close to home, but they are hitting their home. And so we're praying for their family and just pray for them as they continue um, to distress and worry about their family who are over there. And so whichever one of those has stood out to you, I would say, would you just go to God on behalf of that? But let me go ahead and just begin us in prayer. And then would you gather up um, with a few who are sitting around you? And would you go to the Lord on the behalf of these requests that have been shared? So would you please bow your head and let's pray. Um, Father God, uh, we declare that you are good and that you are close to the brokenhearted, that you are the great physician that you are the one from which all of our joy, all of our peace comes from. Um, and as we consider some of these things that that are difficult situations, God, we just thank you that we, um, we don't grieve, we don't mourn like the rest of the world, but that we get to do it with you by our side. And so we just pray for those amongst us who are dealing with difficult situations, God, would your peace just fall on them in this moment. And we just come to you for that. And then, God, there's so much that we have to praise you about <laughs> for 
just the things that are happening in the lives of, of our church family here. And would you help us to see those things that we would praise you. Um, and then, God, we just ask, as now we turn to you in prayer, that you would turn your ear to us. We thank you for being the God who has given us access to your throne. And so now we just approach you in prayer. And Jesus, we get to do so because you've saved us. And so we just ask that this time would be a time that is pleasing to you and a time that is just heard by your ears. And so, Jesus, we turn to you in prayer in this moment. In your name. Amen. Amen. Hey, so you are free um, to gather with one another. And would you just spend the next few minutes in prayer?
Father God, we just thank you for the access that we have to boldly approach you and to make these requests. God, we just thank you um, for the willingness of of Common Ground Church as, as your spirit has prompted people to share these things. We just thank you um, for speaking to us in that way. And, and would this be an exercise in, in hearing from you that we would be a people who truly know you and are truly close to you and who know the shepherd's voice, God. Um, and God, we just pray. We know that though many requests have been shared this morning, there are many that were not. And we know that there are things on people's hearts and minds, there are things in our lives that, that are causing stress, causing anxiety, causing pain. And God, I just pray that you would remind them that even though maybe we didn't all hear those requests this morning, that, that you did. And that you are the good father who is always close, always accessible to those who believe in you. And so, God, I just pray that you would continue to draw us deeper into yourself. Would you continue to draw us into prayer with a reminder that you are the God who listens and hears and acts. And so, God, I just thank you. I thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to come before you in this way. And now we just give these requests to you, open-handed, trusting that you will do with them what is good, what is right, what is true. So now as we turn our attention to your word, we open our ears to what it is that you have to say to us. We ask that you would empower us by your spirit to be a people who don't just hear it, but are people who live by it. And so we just ask that for us today as we now move to your word. And will you help me to communicate this message in a way that would be honoring and glorifying to you? And so Jesus, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Okay, well, thank you, you guys, for leaning into that, uh, for being willing um, to be active and participating. That's one of the beautiful things, I think, that we have about this prayer time is that we're not just sitting back uh, consuming church, but we get to be active in it. And so now... We will enter into our time of teaching where we have been going through the book of Jude, which we just started last week. And we're going to continue that for the next few weeks because even though, depending on your font size, it's only one page and it's a very short book, there's so much in the book of Jude that we're going to spend the next few weeks just really diving into it and seeing all that God might have for us in this book. And so if you find your way to the book of Jude now, it is the second to the last book in the entire Bible there. Um, but as we talked about last week, um, the book, book of Jude was written by Jesus' brother, Jude, um, a guy who grew up in the same house um, as Jesus, and he's writing to a church somewhere. We don't exactly know who the original audience is, um, but he was addressing a lot of issues that were taking place in that church, and the issue that we talked about last week was that people had essentially come in and, and been teaching that because of God's grace, because God is so loving, because God's so forgiving, like we don't actually have to worry about what we do. Like He'll just forgive us um, so we can go out and we can break this rule and that rule, and we can do as much sin as possible because, right, God is so nice. And so sweet and so loving. And Jude is coming after that idea hard and saying, like, no, 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 no. Just because of God's grace is, does not mean that we have license to sin in any way. And so Jude is coming out hard against those ideas. And last week we talked about just how important it is to contend for the faith that we've been giving, to give it our all, to really fight for what Jesus actually did say. Um, and what Jude is essentially saying is that. God has these desires um, for how we might live. And what has led these people to be teaching um, these sinful ideas and to be teaching these false things 
is actually pride. And we're going to be kind of looking through uh, sort of systematically the book of Jude, how Jude highlights what these core issues are that led to this and how it is that we can fight for the faith, how it is that we can give Jesus our all in the face of the cultural pressures, maybe to doubt, to question him, to twist our faith, to compromise our faith. We're going to be looking through all the different prescriptions and all the different things that Jude has to help us and how to stand up um, to the pressure that we might face there. Um, But the thing that we're going to be looking at today is essentially Jude saying that one of the core issues that led these false teachers to teaching the sin that they did was pride. It was essentially pride and rebellion. It was a lack of respect for God as the creator. For God is the Father. Um, because as we know, if church is the household of God, if we are adopted as God's children, then that makes him our Father. And that's a beautiful thing. And we talk about how that means we can come to him and he's Abba, Father. Uh, but I don't know how it was in your house. But in the house that I grew up in, being father, being parent, also meant you kind of get to decide how the household is run, right? You kind of get to decide the standards and the rules. And my parents worked that way in the house that I was in growing up, is they were the ones who decided, here's what is appropriate in the house, and here's what is not. And it didn't really matter if that necessarily made much sense to me at the time, because I was the child, and they were the parent. And this is kind of one of the ways that Jude is teaching about these issues here. Um, And so maybe you can relate. Um, I don't know what kind of standards you guys had growing up in your house, but show of hands, whose parents did not let them wear shoes in the house? Anyone? My mom was crazy about her hardwood floors, and if I wore shoes in the house, I was in big trouble. All right. Uh, Anyone have the rule that you had to, like, finish the food on your plate? Okay. Finishing the food on your plate. One thing that I got in trouble for a lot, especially in high school, was I had a curfew. Uh, I was supposed to be home at a certain time every night, and I broke that quite a few times. But did anyone have a curfew? You guys have a curfew? You have to be home at a certain time? Chris is like, nah. His parents just let him run wild in Wyoming, do whatever he wants. Um, My dad was kind of, I'll say he was pretty intense about us leaving lights on in rooms um, that we were not in. Anyone get yelled at for that? There's some awkward laughter here. Anyone have like GPA rules? You had to get certain grades? No one? Okay. (laughs) Natalie and I, hey, good job. Did it help? I don't know. Anyway. All right. Here's one that Lena and I were talking about, because Lena, my wife, she's a second grade teacher. And one of the things that she notices is that kids are really, really comfortable around adults today. And one of the rules that my parents actually made for us is that we were never allowed to call adults by their first names. Right? You only had to say, like, you know, you know, Mrs. Burkholder, you know, Mr. Schmidt. It was only that. You're never allowed to use another adult's first names. Anyone have that rule? Okay. Some of us. I think it's kind of going out of fashion. Not a lot of kids are doing that today. Anyone have, like, any weird rules that their parents had? Any weird standards that just didn't make sense? My dad wouldn't let me open, like, different brand cereal. Like, if we had, like, Cheerios and... Mm. One at a time. <laughs> you didn't get, like, the giant, like, bag of cereal. It's like, oh, I guess I'm committed to three pounds of checks. Um, but, okay, so we see that there are, like, these there are these standards, right, that we kind of had. And some of them, we just think, are kind of silly. Some of them don't always make sense. But the reality is the parent gets to decide the rules. As a 16-year-old, essentially, kind of, who are we? to question those rules. And frankly, this is a bit of the attitude that Jude has and that he's coming to these false teachers with, is essentially, who 
do you think you really are to say to the Creator God, the Father God, that you don't like these rules, that you're going to twist it, that you're going to do whatever you want, that you are going to blatantly go against what Jesus has taught? And so Jude comes out with a bit of a scathing rebuke of people who are doing this to God the Father. And just to give you a bit of an outline, Jude, uh, it's a kind of hard of a book to go through verse by verse because essentially he loads all the scathing rebuke in the very front. And so if we just went through it like that, you guys, we'd have three weeks of you leaving here really, really depressed. Um, and then you get to all the good stuff right at the end. And so what we're going to kind of do is we're going to kind of jump and we're going to pair some of the good prescription with some of the scathing rebuke. And so today we're going to kind of look at this idea of rebellious pride. And one of the ways that Jude Jude teaches us about this, or he gives examples of what these teachers must have been doing at the time, is he throws these Old Testament stories out. Um, he talks about Cain, he talks about Balaam, he talks about Korah, and, um, and essentially he's making the statement that these teachers, like Cain, who killed his brother, not a very loving thing to do, um, are unloving. Um, and then he talks about Balaam, this guy who was trying to sell the nation of Israel for money. And he says, you know, what they're doing is greedy. They're after your money. And then he's going to cite this story about Korah, about rebellious pride. And he goes through a bunch of other stories about how the Israelites were grumbling in the wilderness, that they didn't have any patience, that they had no faith. Um, he tells a story about the rebellious angels, right? Satan's fall from glory and how that also shows pride and rebellion. And then he cites the story of Sodom and Gomorrah as well. Um, and even Jude doesn't leave it at that. Jude has more examples of why they're bad. Then Jude even goes to nature. Jude has all of these like similes, all these things that they were doing wrong. And he compares these false teachers to being like a hidden reef, right? Like you're driving your battleship through the water and it looks beautiful, but they are going to sink you and you're not going to see it coming. That they're like a waterless cloud that they don't actually help anyone. They're like fruitless trees. They look good, but they're kind of pointless. Um, they're not going to feed anyone. That they're like foam on the beach, like waves kicking up foam. There's just no substance to them. And then they're like wandering stars, which if you're trying to navigate by the stars, they're not going to take you anywhere. And Judah's just going on and on and on through just how bad these comparisons are. And I think the reason he did this is not to give us some new creative biblical insults um, to throw to other people, but he's really trying to get us to take seriously um, the issues at hand. Um, but, of course, he doesn't leave us without help, and so he does have prescriptions. Right at the end of the book, Jude kind of packs, okay, here's how bad the situation is. I went to nature, I went to the Old Testament, I told you how bad the situation is, and then he gives us help at the very end, and really we can break the help down into kind of three different things. And we're going to look at that first one today, where this is the solution to pride and rebellion, where in verse 20 of the book of Jude, he says that we are to be building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. And this is going to be the solution as we look at the issue that they were facing here. And so that's how we're kind of navigating this book as we're looking through, okay, here are the examples, here is the issue, and we're going to be able to get to one of these prescriptions every week here. Um, but the first one that we'll get to is this idea of pride and rebellion. And like I said, Jude comes at it really, really hot really intensely. Um, I wouldn't just throw this same condemnation, the same rebuke at Common Ground Church in a one-to-one -one ratio uh, necessarily, even though we are not perfect. Uh, surely we do have issues going on. Uh, this really is an intense rebuke, and I think we just have to take a step back and see how seriously he's taking it. Don't take this as like me telling all of you, like you're full of yourselves. Um, but we have to just see how seriously God in his word takes pride, rebellion, and sin, and see how it is that we as a church are to respond to it. 
Sound good? And so with that, hopefully you are in the book of Jude. We're going to begin in verse 6. We're going to go all the way through about verse 14, and we're going to talk about this issue that these false teachers were having with pride, rebellion, and taking control from God, the creator. And so follow along in verse 6 as we look at this issue here, where Jude, brother of Jesus, says, and the angels, he's talking about the prideful, the issue that's taking place. The angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but they abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and their surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And in the same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, you're We'll get to when exactly that happened. Did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but instead he said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. And then go to the next slide there. And and Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. He said, see, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them. All the ungodly acts that they have committed in their ungodliness and all of the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Okay, so this is pretty intense, right? Jude has some pretty harsh language used here. And we're just going to kind of look at what exactly is this issue and how is he describing it. And the, and the, the first example that Jude gives to kind of give us a picture of what is this issue of, of sin and pride and rebellion is he starts off in verse 6 by talking about the angels who did not stay within their place of authority. Angels that didn't stay within their place of authority. And this is kind of an obscure reference. Jude, again, he's writing to kind of a Middle Eastern audience that would know these Old Testament stories really, really well. But this essentially is the story that many of us might be familiar with, with the fall of Satan, right? That the the picture that we have is that Satan was an angel created by God for worship, but instead fell through pride and through rebellion. And the story goes, we see in the book of Revelation, that he must have taken other angels with him into that pride and into that rebellion. And we don't have too much in Scripture that really details it, but in places like Isaiah chapter 14, it kind of tells this about the story. Or in Isaiah 14, Isaiah the prophet, speaking of the devil, says that you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, and I will set my throne on high. I will sit in the mount of assembly or the mount of Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. And this essentially was what was going on, we receive from Isaiah here, in the heart of of the devil there. And Ezekiel chapter 28, it talks about Satan having been like, it tells another version of the story, but it's real kind of poetic and real kind of hard to understand what the details are. But it describes him as being essentially like covered in jewels and sort of like built out of instruments. And it's a real poetic way, I think, to just describe how 
He was beautiful, gorgeous, majestic, and he was made for worship. But instead, what we seem to see in the book of Isaiah is that he wanted the worship for himself. Instead of being the created thing, worshiping the creator, seeking that glory, seeking that attention, seeking that star quality for himself. And essentially, it was pride then that led to that, the uh, the created thing wanting to be above the creator. And it seems really dramatic to use, like, the devil as an example of something that these people were doing. And it's easy for us to be like, yeah, you know, we're not as bad as Satan. I should hope that's true. But I still think we should be careful with this. I still think that we have to recognize we, too, are created things. And the reality is that this harsh criticism of pride and rebellion is going to require a lot of people, even a lot of people in us, to really change the way that we view ourselves. Right? This should really change probably our attitudes towards God, um, towards ourself, um, to recognize that we're not the creator, that we are a created thing. And this really, I think, would change drastically the way a lot of people view themselves and view God if we fully lived into the reality, he's the creator, we're the created thing. But it's not an easy message to hear or even to say. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, I was in Alabama this last week, and Southern culture is very different than South Dakota culture. I'll just say that. Um, it really is like a very friendly place. They're more friendly than us. We'll give them that. They're more outgoing than us. I'll give them that. But it's a different kind of friendly, and it's a different kind of outgoing. And even though they're very nice, like they're not afraid to really tell you like it is, and they're not afraid to say hard things. Um, you know, the stereotype is in the South, they'll always say, like, you know, bless her heart, but she is just, you know, dumber than whatever. And they'll say, like, really rude, harsh things, but you'll say, bless your heart, and you'll say it in, like, a really nice Southern way. Um, and it was at this conference where there's actually, the pastor was essentially explaining, like, how to, how he teaches hard things. And one of the things that he literally said is, just remember, you know, anytime you're teaching something hard or difficult, to smile. And so he essentially is just like, oh, it's easy when you tell people things they don't want to hear. Yeah, just smile, and they receive it. Um, And so he, like, went off on, like, a really intense diatribe about how they had recently just fired a pastor because he was like, you know, too many people, too many pastors get into this, and they're willing to talk to people from the stage, but they're not willing to talk to people off the stage. And he was basically saying, like, they were in it for the show. They were not actually humble, loving shepherds. And he gave some harsh rebukes at a room full of pastors. Like, if you're not willing to talk to people off the stage, you should not be allowed to talk to people on the stage. And it was harsh. But he smiled. (laughs) And so on this topic of taking our rightful place as the created thing and not the creator, as we think about the different things that maybe we want in life, as, as we see the rules that maybe we don't understand that seem to be in Scripture that God has for us, and as we disagree with those, I think we have to humbly place ourselves under God's rule and to recognize not like the devil do we want to in rebellion try to make those rules for ourselves. and so it was Tim Keller who actually said this he said if your God never disagrees with you you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself (laughs) did it help? Did it go down easier? Good. I'm glad. But that's the reality. This first example he gives. These angels who rebelled. And then Jude, he doesn't only use a lot of Old Testament stories 
like the fall of Satan there, Jude uses a lot of weird little stories. Like he mentioned there, you, you know the story when Michael the archangel was fighting over Moses' body, right? And he throws that out there. And you might be thinking like, oh man, I think my Sunday school teacher left that one out. Um, because the reality is that actually isn't in our Bible. That story is not in our Bible. Um, Jude uses a lot of Old Testament examples, but then he uses a lot of other examples from books that are actually outside the Bible, books that are often categorized as the pseudepigrapha. Um, and so if you missed the story about Moses' body being fought over, no worries. Um, or if you didn't know too much in like verse 14 when he quoted a, a prophecy from a guy named Enoch. Right? Are you guys familiar with the prophecies of Enoch? Probably not. Some of you might be. Um, but it's kind of strange that he would just throw these out there. Because what Jude was doing is he was citing these other books. Uh, and it's kind of funny, though, because if you've done any Googling or any research on the book of Jude, you'll actually probably find more attention given to these things that Jude cited these books than to actually like learning about Jude. Um, it's kind of fascinating. That people who don't really know much about the Bible, people that don't actually study the Bible, they know about these books. They know about, like, the Assumption of Moses. They know about the book of First Enoch, right? And this is, like, where you get the guy from the Ancient Aliens show where he just, like, goes in and he's like, ah, the Christians, they're not reading First Enoch. And they're, you know, having relationships with demons and creating NBA players and doing weird things. And people are into all these weird ideas about the book of Enoch. And they know more about it than really they should. And so people are really thrown off by the fact that uh, that Jude quotes it here. Um, but you here go to Common Ground Church, and so you are not silly enough to fall for some of the weird conspiracy theories that are thrown out by, like, this, uh, this ancient aliens guy. And so we're going to look at, okay, well, why does Jude use it? Are these books any good? Should we read them? Should we be paranoid about relationships with demons and people who are too tall? Uh, I would say no. Um, but what these books are often referred to as are the pseudepigrapha. Um, and pseudo just means false or means fake. Uh, and graphe means to inscribe or inscription. And so by calling them pseudepigrapha, the Assumption of Moses and the Book of First Enoch, we're just saying that they were a false inscription or that they're fake writing. That doesn't necessarily mean it's all just bunk or it's all just um, wrong. But fundamentally, the first thing that we note about them is that they were written under fake names. So like... The book of Enoch, um, just because it says that it was written by Enoch, um, doesn't mean that it was. Um, because uh, first Enoch, the oldest copies that we have of it were from about 300 B.C., about the year 300 B.C., which is long after the time that the actual guy Enoch lived. He lived about 3300 B.C. Um, so you have about a 3,000-year difference. I don't think he was necessarily the one who wrote it. Uh, evidence doesn't look strong on that. Um, but the reason that you would essentially write this book and say it was written by Enoch I mean, there are a lot of theories on why you would do it, but one of the things that you can easily do if you write under a pseudonym, a pseudonym or a different name here is obviously you're going to sell more, right? I mean, if I write a book under the name Evan Fowler, I know all of you guys are going to buy it. I know my mom will buy it. But if I were to write under the name Billy Graham, which one's going to sell more? Evan Fowler, exactly. And so that's why Billy Graham shouldn't be writing books and saying it's under Evan Fowler. But that's essentially kind of what happened is like if someone has written something and they have not put their real name on it, but they have written under a different name, 
something suspicious about that. Either they're after more book sales, or perhaps they are just not willing to stand by what they wrote. That could be an issue. Because one of the reasons that it's not, these books are not included in the Bible is because they weren't written by the people they're claimed to be written by. Enoch was long gone by the time it was written. Um, but there's also just a lot of like historical errors and issues in the books themselves, um, especially in the assumption of Moses. The assumption of Moses like has some dates kind of wrong of when rulers were in place, and they kind of messed up geography in certain places. Um, and it's almost like they didn't plan on people in the future being able to check out these things, um, which is really unfortunate for them when you're trying to write a, a fake book here. Um, because one of the interesting things things that we know is getting geography and getting history and getting dates down is actually really, really hard to do. I think it's really hard. People generally are bad at recording accurate dates and geography. But yet, as we look through the Bible, it's very fascinating that they didn't mess up. Um, that the geography, as we look into it, seems to match up. All the dates seem to match up. And it's almost like the biblical authors had help when they were writing it. Um, and so it appears these guys didn't really have help because it's just kind of riddled with historical mistakes that makes it clear. I don't think the Holy Spirit was here protecting this writing. Um, but the third reason that these books are often included in the pseudepigrapha is sometimes they just have straight-up heresy and just weird, bad ideas. You've probably heard of, like, the Gospel of Thomas. Right, that's like a really popular one. People are really into that one. Uh, one of the issues with it, um, aside from the dating of when it doesn't look like it was written by actual Thomas, is that it has a lot of stories in it that are nowhere else in Scripture, and especially a lot of stories about Jesus' childhood that are kind of just unnecessary, like Jesus as a child he wanting to show off his powers to his friends. And so the Gospel of Thomas says that he takes clay and he makes little birds and makes them fly away, you know like show off to his friends and you kind of think i don't know if jesus would do that um and there's there's another story which it's fascinating because the prophet muhammad who founded islam he was really into the gospel of thomas um and this next um story is actually quoted twice in the quran and it's when jesus is essentially a middle schooler some kid in school bumps into him and jesus just boom kills a seventh grader just like you don't bump into Jesus. Uh, and that doesn't seem to match the Jesus that we know, right? Um, but the interesting thing is that because that's in this Gospel of Thomas book, I mean, Muhammad really took that personally and really took that as a great picture of who Jesus is. And he kind of formed his opinion on who Jesus is a lot with the, the Jesus that doesn't get messed with. The Jesus who, like, if bumped into, will just smite you. And now Jesus, in the story of the Gospel of Thomas, like, felt bad for it and then raised him from the dead. Um, but still, doesn't really seem like something um, that Jesus would have done. And so obviously there are these stories in here that don't seem to match the character of God that we have in every single other book. And so that's the other reason that we just don't include a lot of these books in there. Like, Enoch has a lot of prophecies that just don't seem to match things that God would say or do or that just didn't take place. So they seem to be wrong. And these books, they get a lot of attention by people online. They get a lot of attention by people who think, like, you know, the Christians are hiding these books because they don't want us to know the truth. But you look into them and... I would say, look into them, read them if you're interested in them, but I would say read them the same way you would read, like, Plato or 
you know, the Odyssey, that you would read these stories to get a perspective of what other people believe or to get a perspective of different cultures. Don't be too thrown off if it looks a lot like Genesis, but then twist some of the details. I don't think we need to have um, a heart attack by the differences in, in, in these books and by the fact that Jude quotes them. The fact that Jude quotes them doesn't mean we have to take them. We're like, hey, okay, we got to know everything about First Enoch. Because the reality is that the biblical authors were free to quote from outside of Scripture when giving these examples, right? They were free to say, hey, I'm trying to teach you about this thing. And they're essentially taking a pop culture reference to get their audience to hear it. Because the people in that day, they would have known the stories of First Enoch. They would have known the stories of the Assumption of Moses. And so Jude is not saying, like, yep, the Assumption of Moses is real, 100% truth in there. But he's just saying, if even Michael in this story that you guys know well was not willing to take that position of authority, and you guys know that story, then we shouldn't either. And essentially what he's doing is he's taking these pop culture references and drilling home this same point about rebellion, about pride, with these references. So I don't think we need to freak out um, when the Bible quotes some of these extra biblical sources and think, well, hey, we got to go figure those out. We got to go read all of them Um, because it does happen a lot. Um, like we went through Titus a few weeks ago and, and the Apostle Paul, he quoted Epimenides, the Greek philosopher, to say that Cretans are... Not very cool. So it doesn't mean we have to go read everything that Epimenides has written, right? Or it's actually in Second Timothy. It's interesting that Timothy seemed to know the names of Pharaoh's magicians and were never given those in the book of Exodus. So he's getting that from somewhere else. That doesn't mean we need to freak out and there's information that's hidden out there. But what they're doing is they're using these examples to push a point home. Um, And maybe this isn't something I would stand by forever, but I think God quoting outside biblical sources to drive his point across, that's really like a a dad move, you know? It's like when you got rules on kids not being able to watch R-rated movies. It's like, but dad, how come you're watching that movie? I'm dad. I can do that. Um, so even though we might not necessarily be able to take these things and use them in our lives, God is free to take anything that's happened in his creation to drive his point across. So don't be too thrown off by Jude citing these weird stories. Um, look at the example. Um, look at the history. Look at the culture and see how it can help us to understand the Bible there. So once the ancient alien guy comes on again, then... Don't worry too much. Um, And then he gives the example. He gives another Old Testament example of Korah's rebellion. In verse 11, he says that they will be destroyed by Korah's rebellion. And this is actually like a really fascinating story um, in Numbers chapter 16, where you've got these three guys, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And they're mad that Moses, Miriam, and Aaron are leading the people. They're like, "Ah, why are these three in charge? We want to be in charge. And so they're rebelling against the authority, and they're wondering, who put you in charge? And Moses is like, God. Um, And they're like, well, we don't believe that God actually put you in charge. And so Moses is like, okay, well, we'll do a little test. We'll do a little test if you guys don't think we're in charge, because they were gathering a pretty big rebellion behind them. And Moses said, okay, well, we'll do a test. We'll do this whole worship thing and, like, take your censors and give your worship to God. And if he accepts it, then we'll know that you guys can be the leaders. And they're like, no, that's your test. We're not even going to play your test. And so Moses and Aaron are like, okay, you don't have to play by our rules. You don't have to do our test. Here's the test for you guys then, if you don't want to play our game. If you guys die of natural causes 
at an old age, then we'll say, you're right, you should have been the leaders the whole time. But if you die mysteriously between now and then, then we'll know that Moses, Aaron, and Miriam were actually the leaders and that these guys were not. And so that's the test that Moses puts out there. And then Moses says, okay, now everyone else, I would suggest taking a few steps back from these three guys. Um, And a lot of people didn't. A lot of people kind of stayed with them. And what the story in number 16 says happened is that the earth opened her mouth and then shut it over them. And essentially a giant sinkhole opened, and these three guys and everyone that they had led in rebellion were swallowed into the earth. And here is your favorite coloring page from Sunday school of that exact thing happening. Where... They got swallowed by the earth. And so that seems like non-natural causes, right? (laughs) Seems like the test is pretty clear. I think Moses, Aaron, and Miriam are in charge, and I think these guys were being rebellious. Right? The funny thing is, if you read the story, the people are then mad at Moses. They're like, why did you kill the leaders God put in charge? And it's like, lost cause. Um, But either way, the point of this story is that God has put leaders in charge And we're to submit to that authority. And what seems to be happening in the book of Jude is that there were elders, there were pastors over this church, and these other people were coming in and trying to teach these other things. And it says that they were hidden reefs at the love feast, right? When people were gathering for communion, when people were gathering for worship, they were going up to people and they were saying like, hey, what this guy taught wasn't the real truth. He's not the leader. You should listen to me instead. And he's comparing them to these guys in the Old Testament that were rebelling against leadership and just how clear God made it that they were not in charge. They were not to rebel against the leadership of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam here. And I think the message for us here is that we must be in submission um, in these different places. Um, That sometimes, especially with God, especially with the authority of his word, We want to like rebel against it. We want to push against it. We might hear the interpretation of a passage and be like, that's not what I like to think or believe. Who are you to be so factual about the Bible? But I think we have to take a pause and step back and see a rebellious spirit in that. We have to recognize when we might be struggling with authority in that way. So these, these are the issues here that they seem to be pointing out here, that these guys had an inflated view of themselves. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam were leading the people in this way, and they were thinking, no, 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 we can do this better. We could not wander in the wilderness so much. We could lead in all these other ways. And the issue that Jude is addressing is, hey, you know, these, these leaders are teaching that people need to repent, people need to pray, people need to, like, hold themselves back from their desires. And, like, no, we could teach much better. We could teach people into freedom and just having, like, a happy-go-lucky life. And Jude is coming in and saying, absolutely not. Like, they think they know better. They think that they have this big, grand view of themselves, but really they're doing the same thing that Korah and the Israelites did there. Have you ever heard of John C. Maxwell? You guys heard of John C. Maxwell? He's like pretty well known. He was a pastor, and then he wrote a lot of leadership books. He's very like kind of boomer leadership level books, really, really popular, 80s and 90s. Well, John C. Maxwell, he wrote a lot about knowing yourself and learning about yourself um, to improve in leadership. Um, But what he found is that, hey, I think people get too full of themselves by following my books and by following my things. And so he's kind of clarifying, here's the reason we got to know ourselves. He says, I have to find myself to know myself, to be myself, to improve myself, to get over myself. 
so that I can give myself to God, he says. And this picture of, yeah, we got to be able to improve. we got to be able to know these things. But anytime you're making kind of an inflated view of yourself that would put yourself above God, it's going to be an issue. That's essentially the rebellion of Korah there. So these are the examples that Jude gives. Here's the problem. Pride, rebellion, lack of submission to authority. It's a serious problem. And Jude has these really intense reasons that it is a problem. But he doesn't leave us without help. He doesn't leave us without hope, right? Because in verse 20, here's a solution to all this as he's wrapping this up. He says, but you, and he's talking to the church that he's just explained all these things to. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Here's the application for some of you, right? When facing rebellion, when facing the temptation to be prideful in your own heart, Focus on your own spiritual growth. Focus on your own relationship with God here. Um, Because it can be easy to point fingers when problems arise, right? It can be easy to point fingers at the bad teachings that are going around and at others. And what Jude is instructing here is that, hey, when people are coming in and they're acting like rebellious angels and they're doing the same thing that Korah did, and they're not taking heed of the warnings in the Old Testament, instead of just pointing fingers and attacking, we have to point our fingers right back at ourselves. And see that actually the way that we fight for Jesus in the face of this is by growing in our relationship with him. It's by our own spiritual growth. That we deal with problems in the church, we deal with problems of theology by building ourselves up, by growing in ourselves. And the way that we do that is through prayer. Specifically here, he says, praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Now this is actually a phrase that's been fought about a lot. In Christian history, um, it's the same phrase that's mentioned in Ephesians and letter to Timothy, and it's kind of mentioned in Acts. Uh, and it's been fought a lot over for the Pentecostals, for the more charismatic, they'd say, well, this just means praying in tongues. For your non-Pentecostals, they'd say, nope, it's absolutely not in tongues necessarily. Here's my compromise that I would say in that big debate. I would say that tongues are a good thing. I think seek God for it. I think they're active and great today. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily only what this means to pray in the Spirit. And I don't think that necessarily everyone must or should pray in tongues. I think it's a gift given to some. But I think the qualifier here is that what Jude is saying is that we are to pray with more than words. Um, that we are to pray in sync with the Holy Spirit. That we are to pray with the Holy Spirit. Directed by Him in cooperation with Him. And I think what he's getting at here is, you see, we often pray at God. But instead, we should be praying with God, right? Praying in the Holy Spirit, right? Participating actively with God in prayer. As it says in Romans, groaning's too deep for words, right? That in praying with God, rather than just giving God the list of the things that we want, rather than just telling God what we think he should do about these false teachers or what we think we need for this, it's almost always just a dramatic act of surrender to say, God, Help me to pray this. God, lead me in prayer. God, what would you have me say even to you? And I think it would be absolutely like a a swing and a miss if we were to look at pride, look at placing ourselves as created things above the creator, and then say, all right, now it's up to us to figure this out and to get our lives together. I think taking control is the root issue here. And I think praying in the spirit is the solution there, where we're deferring even our prayer to God. 
where we're deferring even what we want as a result to the Holy Spirit. God, what is your will for my life in this situation? And we would come to God with this listening posture. God, help me to pray. What should I even be asking for in this situation? All right? Where God is saying, if pride, rebellion is an issue that we might face, if this is a teaching that's coming at us, which I would say it is coming at us from the culture, then would we be a people who don't even get close to grasping for that pride? Would we be a people who we boldly approach God and and his throne and, and we see that the veil is torn, but we wouldn't be so prideful as to say, okay, now God, I get to tell you what to do. That we would come forward and we would say, God, I want to pray with you. I want to pray in your spirit, in line with you. Because the reality is that one of the central benefits of prayer is time with God and just how it changes us. Because as you spend time with people, they rub off on you, right? The longer you spend together, the more you kind of act together. And prayer is one of those things where we are spending time with God, where his virtue, his goodness rubs off on us. It shapes us. It it drives us towards virtue in our lives. Um, But prayer is also just such an important thing when it comes to false teachings and the pressures that we might face in this world. Because prayer is something that no one can ever take away from us, right? I mean, worst case scenario... Let's say everything goes just absolute garbage. Christianity's outlawed. They've taken all of our Bibles. They've burned them. They've thrown them away. You know what they could never take away from you? A healthy prayer life. A confidence to be able to approach God and spend time with him. Can never take that away from us. And so prayer is one of the most important things that we could spend our time doing. It's one of the most important ways that we could just come before God and say, I can't take control of this situation. God, I'm putting it in your hands. And this is what's being instructed here. It's being instructed here. And I think there's also a bit of a a mindset shift that Jude is explaining here with this idea of praying in the Spirit. Um, Because I think often we would approach prayer as maybe just yelling out into the void, hoping that God might hear us. But we also must remember, as he mentions this idea of, of praying in the Spirit, that, that we're told we are temples of the Holy Spirit. That in this mysterious way, he's dwelling inside of us. He is with us. And so, as we come before God in prayer, he's the one who is in our heart. He's in our mind. He's in our life. He's the one who knows our situation even better than we do. And I've heard it often said when people are like, you know, wouldn't you like God to be working and active today, just like he was in the Old Testament, where he was doing these miracles and he was doing these crazy things. And frankly, I would say no, because the reason God had to work externally back then was that he wasn't working in the same way internally for people. People were not going around as temples of the Holy Spirit. God's fire had to fall on the altar in the temple because God's fire wasn't falling on the hearts of people. And so frankly, we have it better now where we as temples of the Holy Spirit have God with us inside of us. And when we pray, we don't have to travel to some certain location to be in his presence. We enter into his presence as soon as we turn to him in prayer. And I think our prayer must be in alignment with this. I think our prayer must be in alignment with this mindset to recognize that his presence is with us and in us. And when we turn to him, he's there. And when we don't necessarily know what to pray in the situations in which we're in, then we could humbly surrender and hand that over to him. And we would pray in cooperation and in sync with him. 
And I think this is the solution to rebellion, to pride, to an inflated view of self, even to maybe the the standards that God has set that we really wrestle with. I think the solution to it is praying in the Holy Spirit. It's going to the God who is Father, who is Creator. Just humbly submitting to Him. And I think with all the pressures that we face to, to compromise our faith or to doubt God, I think this is a solution that can carry us through. It's time with the Father, with the Spirit inside of us, who knows us and ministers to us and is always accessible to us. And so with that, I think we go to him now. And so we're going to continue on in worship. But would you just bow your head and would you just join me in prayer here as we close? As Father God, uh, we just take a step back and, and we see all the many ways in which we are often rebellious and we often out of our ignorance for what it is that you've commanded us or instructed us or led us to, that we we go our own way. We just repent of all of those things, and we thank you for your grace of always being the Father who is good to us even after that, that you were the one who even took the punishment for our rebellion. And God, we just thank you for being the God who's accessible to us, that we can turn to you, that we can speak with you, that your listening ear is there to hear us, but also you're there to help us in prayer. That you are here to be present, to change us, and to shape us. And so, God, we just ask that we would be a people who would constantly just run to you. As we face pressures that even we might want to succumb to, would your voice just be loud and clear in our ears? That we would be a people who truly know what it is to pray in your spirit in this way. And so, Jesus, we just thank you. We thank you for giving us access. And now as we, we turn to you in worship, as we turn to the bread and the wine, to recreate, to remember what you have done for us, God, would you just be speaking loud and clear? Would you be close to all of us in this room today? And so, Jesus, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. My soul needs to know. 
first. communion today, I just want us to spend a little bit of time applying essentially what we've talked about um, in preparation for taking the bread and the wine. I want us to, to remember a bit of the context of when Jesus instituted communion, because as we often talk about, we talk about like the one cup that he had, but in a Passover meal and a Passover celebration, there were actually four cups, and you would kind of work your way through these four cups, and so we're just going to spend some time essentially praying through those things, because the first cup that you would drink as you remember the work of God in the Passover, it was called the cup of sanctification, um, not in the idea of holiness that we think of, but in the idea of being set apart, because God took his people out of Egypt and set them apart in freedom. And so as we prepare ourselves to approach communion today, I just want us to reflect on the fact that Jesus has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And so I want to give you a moment with your God right now just to reflect on that and to thank him for transferring you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Passover meal, the second cup was the cup of deliverance, and it was a celebration of the salvation of the of the freedom that the people had experienced. Not only were they out of Egypt, but they were free from slavery. And so as we approach this today, would you reflect on the freedom that you have been given in Christ? The freedom from your sin. Would you look back on the sins that He has freed you from? Maybe there are things as well that you are still praying to be freed from. But you just go to God with those things in this moment. the payment 
for sins that Jesus has given you. And so the last cup is the cup of praise, a cup of praise to come before the God who, as we reflect, has done all these things for us. And so I'm going to invite you uh, forward now. If you would come forward, we have two um, trays in the front and one in the back um, to grab the cups to return to your seat um, as we celebrate what God has done for us. Now I just invite you to come and to grab these cups as we praise God for what he has done. And so we're going to begin another song here and give you some time um, to grab the cups and to return to your seats, and then we will take this together. I don't have enough words. I'll never live enough lifetimes to fully know your worth. To know all that you deserve All of my deceptions All of my duplicity And now there is a record You assume the best of me This is why I thank the Lord for saving me When I was weak So I will sing This is why I thank the Lord Everything I have to give is some of my. 
because historically they would use a very, very strong, actually very bitter wine because the idea was that it's it's celebratory. It's something to to celebrate, but yet at the same time it's, it's bittersweet, that there's a bit of a bittersweetness to it because we know exactly why we're celebrating. Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. He says, this is my body given for you. We celebrate that, but yet we know all that that entailed. And so as you take this, would you take it with that bittersweet idea of Jesus taking our punishment for us? So would you take and would you eat? And in the same way, in the Gospel of Luke, it says, After the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So this is the cup that has done all that we've considered. That just as the Passover celebrates the blood on the doorpost and death passing over, that we get to celebrate this cup today because Jesus' blood is painted on the doorpost of our heart freed us from sin and death. So would you take this in remembrance of him? So Jesus, all that we have to do left is praise you. We just declare that you are good, you are holy, that you have saved your people. So we turn to you in praise. All glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now would you please stand as we continue in worship. This is how I thank the Lord for saving me when I was weak. So I will sing. This is how I thank the Lord for everything. This is how I thank the Lord. And this is how I thank the Lord for loving me and keeping me. So I will sing. This is how I thank the Lord for everything. This is how I thank the Lord. Thank the Lord for loving me. 
Church, you know how to pray in the Spirit. So as you go, would you go with the words of 1 Peter chapter 5? Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So grace and peace, common ground. Thank you for being here. Have a wonderful week. This is hard.